I'm Bev and I'm a compulsive overeater. Let's start this morning with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. I understand that some people came in late last night and people still need the number for Maria Stein. Is that true? Okay. The number for Maria Stein is 419-925-4538. The only other thing I wanted to announce is that for people who do not wish to be taped, we can, we can do that. We can accommodate you. If you would like to share, but you don't want your sharing on tape, just make a gesture to Bill. He will hit the pause button. <laughs> any, any kind of a nice gesture. <laughs> he can hit the pause button, and you will not be recorded. So that's no problem. Um, the thing by having questions, Janelle. One more time for the phone number, 419-925-4538. Okay. Does anybody have any questions about Maria Stein, the retreat, anything before we get started? Everybody knows everything and everybody is deliriously happy and all that's great. Okay. Okay, then we... Uh -huh. Um, I don't know whether Dulcie worked that out that they would un unlock that for us or not. I know that that, the one thing I would suggest, you have some time this afternoon um, to go for walks. You could go and check, you know, because I know that it's open this afternoon because there's a gift shop in that chapel. The church begins at 10 o'clock in the chapel. Thank you guys. Thank you guys and 10.30 at the St. John's Church. So that is, you know, kind of in the midst of what we're doing, so just use your own discretion. Paula? Yeah. She didn't mention that to me because I asked her that when I called. Okay, so as far as I understand it, it's, yeah, Patty. And 7.30 tonight, there's a Mass. There's a Mass at 7.30 tonight and 10 tomorrow morning, 10.30 tomorrow morning. Okay. So there's some information on a board out there, I understand. Okay. Is there anything else, any other questions that I can't answer? Okay, then it is my extreme pleasure to introduce to you Lucille. Yeah, you could go ahead and do it. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lucille, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Did you all rest well? You look wonderful. Um, first, I'm going to show you my shirt. For those of you that can't read it, it says unmanageable. Because this morning, what we're going to talk about is living in the solution. And the solution for me is the 12 steps. And the 12 steps, the way that I'll break them down for you this weekend, will be step one, two, and three, which I kind of feel are the uh, fundamental steps, the basic steps. And then I'll do 
4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, which I think are the action steps. I'll do that tonight. And then tomorrow I'll do 10, 11, and 12, which for me are the maintenance steps. I wore this shirt. Today is not my unmanageable day, but I wore it because uh, it represents the step. The, uh, the topic is living in the solution. And when they called and told me that, I thought, living in the solution. And I didn't exactly know what I would do because I didn't know what the solution was. I know what it is for me, but I certainly don't know what it is for 75 people. And I think that the solution could be a lot of things. And it, it was different for me at different times. Early in my um, recovery, the solution was the food plan. And then the solution was the meetings, and the solution was this and that. But as time has gone on, I come to realize that the one solution that remains the, the same and that has been constant have been the 12 steps in my life. I work those 12 steps differently. You know, certainly I did a fourth step when I was in the first year of my sobriety and my, my abstinence, but that fourth step was not like the fourth step I did five years ago. Or I did a 10th step then, but I, things have changed. And I think that the reason that I've been able to be around the program this long and maintain the way that I have is because I just kind of keep seeing them new all the time. You know, it's not the same old 12 steps. You know, it's, it's, it's the wonderful gift of the 12 steps, that, the 12 steps that give us the new life that we live. So today, I'm going to hear to talk about um, admitting that I'm powerless over food and that my life has become unmanageable. I wasn't powerless over food, you see. And I thought it was ridiculous that a cookie had power over me. And when I first came in, I didn't think that my life was unmanageable. Certainly, I could manage everybody else's life, you know. I knew what my grandmother should do. I knew what my father should eat. I knew where my sister should go to college. I really was involved with everybody's life. So I didn't understand the 12 steps. Powell over food. I was heavy, 125 pounds heavy, overweight. But I could do it if I wanted to. So I, was, I had a hard time. I read the book, but I didn't, really, I didn't really grasp the concept of knowing what powerless is. Today I understand that power, I am powerless over food. It doesn't have power over me because I don't give it that power. But if I start to get in the ring with the food, I think I'm on vacation, it's all right. I'll eat three or four meals today. I can have what everybody else has. That girl's heavier than I am. She can eat that, she gets away with it. I probably could get away with it too. I don't get away with it. So today I, I have a healthy respect for that powerlessness. I know that food um, is a poison in my life in excess. I know that that food leads me into the unmanageability that the step talks about. Unmanageable, the, the, the story that I shared last night, you know, not being able to have a job, not being able to have a relationship, not being able to wear a bathing suit or go out on dates or do things like that. That's, that's what unmanageable is. For me, controlling everybody else's life, real into depression and self-pity, wanting everything my own way, that I've come to understand is, is unmanageable. You know, really wanting to control. That doesn't happen in my life today. I can accept being powerless over food. Someone asked me today at the table, do I go to family functions? I went to a wedding on Sunday for my, uh, one of my sisters. And they had everything there from soup to nuts. And I had a wonderful time. You know, and I don't even notice what everybody else is doing. I know what I'm supposed to do. And I do that. I don't try to control as much as I used to. Um, I always, my whole, I come from an obese family, so I always want for them what I have for myself. But I don't, I don't really get into this stuff too much anymore, and, and I find that I have a better time. This step also talks about a mental obsession um, 
and a physical allergy. I certainly had the mental obsession. I was obsessed with food. I thought about getting it, hiding it, buying it, consuming it, lying about it. It was a little vicious cycle. You know, I'd be sitting here talking to somebody and I could hear the candy wrappers over here on the side and I knew that somebody had something somewhere and boy did I want it. And I couldn't even be in dialogue with somebody if I knew that there was a carbohydrate someplace else in the room. I mean, I had to get there and get that. That happens now. Sometimes I'm distracted at a meeting. Somebody's unraveling chewing gum someplace and I'm thinking, um, but I was obsessed with that. I was, a, I was a terrible student, I admit this. And I was a terrible student because I was obsessed with lunch. You know, I just, all I wanted to do was leave and go to lunch, you know. And then I went to lunch and I ate all this kind of junk food at lunchtime and I came back to school and I really was always in the fog. But my mind was very preoccupied. I could tell you my vacations by the food we ate. You know, I know what we had at every one of my sisters and brothers' weddings. I, you know, it's like kind of like, I don't know what we wore, I don't know what the weather was like, but I certainly know the menu for, you know, from here, you know, for 10 years back. I mean, I can remember that stuff like it was yesterday. Don't eat it in that restaurant, the food's no good. What do you mean the food's no good? Well, the food is fine, but they don't bring large enough portions is really what I mean, you know? The, the good restaurants were the quantity restaurants. So I, when I read this step, I, I really kind of got in touch with knowing that I was powerless over food, that this was a disease. It's a real, it's, it's kind of, it's really difficult to, to face that because I just didn't want to admit defeat. You know, palace over food, that means I am defeated. When it comes to food, I am going to lose. You know, all, pretty much, we're, we're, we're self-sufficient. I could do it by myself. I am not defeated. You know, I was 18 when I came into the program, and I really thought it was a joke. Who could be powerless over this? Here I was, 130 pounds overweight, thinking, you know, this is silly. It, it isn't silly. You know, we all are stuck in those traps of obsession and uh, mental obsession and lying about food, self-pity, remorse, hating ourselves. And then I think, well, why wouldn't I just give that up? Um, step one is something that I need to come back to over and over again. I think that the, the first three steps, one, two, and three, are kind of like fundamental. I kind of do them over and over because I don't, it's kind of like needs to be reinforced. I didn't take this step once and, and it's all over. I need to be reminded that I am powerless over food. I go on vacation, but my disease doesn't go on vacation. It comes with me. And even today, sometimes I, I get, you know, like kind of lackadaisical sometimes. And I think, you know, it's been a long time. I'm really all right. Probably I could wing it. I don't wing it too good. Even after all these years, I'm much, more, I'm much better. I don't, I'm not as uptight. I'm not rigid. I don't bring a cooler everywhere I go with me. But I really always have to reinforce that at any time, my mental obsession is going to kick in, and then it's my choice. I either tell it to, you know, kind of like relax and take a break, or I give in to that, and then I find myself in, in a lot of trouble. The, the other part of this is that it's a, an allergy, an allergic reaction, and I believe that's true for me. If I put excess carbohydrates in my body, my body wants more and then I feed it, and then it wants more, and then the vicious cycle goes. So then there's the mental obsession, I eat the food, my body craves more, the obsession starts again, and we're trapped. People shared here with me that that's how, that's how you put on all that weight. People who have gained 100 pounds or more, it starts, it happens, you do it, around and around and around you go. That was the story of my life until I came into the program. I, I didn't know how to break out of the obsession, the addiction, the obsession, the addiction. The step also says that we can't recover on our own. That this is the step that I come to realize that my own willpower isn't going to do it and that it, 
that this is, is going to just keep going unless I get some kind of help. The first step is an admission. It's a surrender. It's the first step that I do 100%. And I do the first step every day. When I wake up, I read the step or I just say it in my mind, and I ask God to help. I am powerless over food, and my life has become unmanageable when I allow myself to be active in that disease. When I look back at my eating, like the step says, I now know that it wasn't a habit. The book says it wasn't a mere habit. My eating behavior from early childhood until now, you know, was, a, was addictive behavior. It was out of control. You know, as a, a young child, you don't get to be 180 pounds by the eighth grade, you know, because you just like to notch a little. Something was seriously wrong. No one understood what that was then. You know, we thought it was the baby fat or, you know, that I'd outgrow it. But when I look back at my life now, I know that I did have a serious addiction and that overeating was a disease and is a disease. And I was, and I have that disease. You know, I grew up in a family with the other four with Chubby, but they didn't have the same obsession that I had. Or maybe they don't have the same addiction. You know, they're able to work out their food plans in a different way. So that's pretty much what I think about the first step. I think that the first step is necessary for me. I need to read it. I need to go to a step meeting. I need to be reminded of it. And I need to always remember that, that this is a serious disease. I make a lot of jokes about being heavy. I laugh about it now. But it really is very serious. Overeating is a killer disease. You know, we don't, open, we don't read on the headlines, you know, uh, fat lady pulls out a Dunkin' Donuts and, you know, hits somebody. We read about drunk drivers. We don't, people die of obesity, but we don't see that. We read, heart, you know, 65-year-old man dies of heart attack. 47-year-old man dies of heart attack. A lot of those heart attacks are due to obesity, you know, overeating. But we disguise all that, kidney disease. The longer that I stay in recovery um, and the more that I listen to people's stories, I know that, that people die of compulsive overeating. Um, and that I was uh, well on my way to being one of those people. I probably will live a long, healthy life now. My p functions work. You know, my heart's good, my liver's good, my kidneys are good. My blood pressure is fine. I had high blood pressure, you know, a, a lot of years, a lot of years. I didn't really pay much attention to that, but I do now. And I know that, that this is, I have one body. God has given me this body. And it's my responsibility to care for it. And if I expect to carry it around through this life, that I need to do like the step does. Admit that I am powerless over this substance that kills me. Find a way to you know, live a day at a time with this disease, make peace with it, and move on. The second step tells me that I is come, came to believe that a power greater than myself would restore me to sanity. Back home, they say, first you come, then you come to and then you come to believe, which is what happened to me. I came for a long time. I didn't believe in a higher power. I didn't understand a higher power. And I certainly wasn't out of the fog. Um, I came around for a while. And then eventually I started to come to a little bit. I started to read the step and get a better understanding of the steps. Um, and then I came to believe. Believing the higher power for me was a challenge. I had a, a, a religion. I was raised um, in a, in a in a home where we went to church, and, and that was in my life. But I never understood that that God was going to help me with my eating disease. I didn't relate God and church with overeating. Um, I, I thought that this was some evil, nasty thing, and that it was all my responsibility and all my fault, and probably I was being punished. 
So the higher power was a real uh, challenge for me. The step, though, was real comforting because there were no demands. The 12 steps were but suggestions. It didn't say you must believe this and you must do this today. It said that we suggest that you come to believe in something. Um, the other thing it said is that I didn't have to swallow all that at one time. To get abstinent and to stay abstinent, I didn't have to understand completely what all these steps were talking about. I just had to have kind of an open mind. And that's all I needed. If I had an open mind and a willingness to believe in something, that I would be okay. It also told me that the higher power could be anything I wanted it to be. You know, maybe we can't believe in God. Maybe we weren't raised in religious homes. Maybe we were and we turned our backs on them. Maybe it just wasn't for us. But I could think of something else. I could make the group my higher power. Certainly, you know, you go into a room of people and you, and you stand up there and you see people who have lost large amounts of weight or even small amounts of weight but are living in not a non-compulsive state. If they could do it, I could do it. And that, that was enough. That, that would be enough faith to sustain us. And that's what the book says, that you could just have faith in something. So I was able to kind of grab hold of that in the beginning. I realized that I just had to have some faith that I could do this simple program a day at a time. And, and that's what happened. I was able to do that. The book def defines sanity as a soundness of mind. The step says I would be restored to sanity. I didn't want to think that I was insane. I didn't think I was crazy. I thought I was just heavy. You know, I'm not crazy. I thought that crazy was, I don't, I mean, I was pretty close to crazy now that I think about this. I mean, I was pretty non-functional and most people would think I was crazy. But, you know, sanity is just a bad choice of words. And so we resist that. Who wants to be called insane? But when the book tells me that it's a soundness of mind, I, I understand that and I accept that I was not, or I was acting in, a, in an unsane manner. You know, it is not sane to get in your car at 11 o'clock at night to go to the quick check. You know, it isn't sane to smash three or four donuts down your throat and then sit down and eat a normal breakfast with other people. You know, that's, that's insane. And I thought, oh, it really is. And, you know, there are on and on the behaviors that we go through. Um, I, of course, was a binge eater and a sneak eater. So, I mean, I had, I had hid food in more places than I wish to remember. You know, beautiful clothes, suit, jacket, pockets. You know, I'd be at work and somebody would walk in my office and, you know, I'd whip some messy, gooky thing into my suit pocket. I think to myself, you know, I've got a lot of money for the suit. And here I am just, you know, I, but I didn't want anybody to know that I was, you know, eating, eating the way I wasn't supposed to eat. And so when I reflect back now, I think that that is very insane behavior. And even now, I mean, I have to be very careful with my thinking. It's very easy for me to, like, get into the whole stinking thinking and, you know, kind of get into that insane thinking. You know, one of my, uh, my favorite stories is my brother-in-law is 6'6", six, six, very thin, works as a construction worker, and stays very thin, and he can eat like a machine. And, and my, my little sister and I joke about it. She's her, his wife. And, and I, sometimes I tell him, I said, you know, I, if, I ever had, if I was granted one wish, I wish that I would be able to eat like Patrick. And she looks at me like, I can't believe you still think about this stuff. But sometimes I think, I just want to be tall and thin and be able to eat all the time. You know, but I wouldn't eat like he eats. I would want to eat the insane way that I eat. You know, I think that I want to be restored to sanity. I want to be down to a good weight. And then I want to eat normal. But my normal is not like the normal people eat. You know, I want to eat like an active compulsive overeater, but stay sane and thin. And I had to get real clear on that. You know, when I go out and I see people eating these mass quantities of food, and I think, oh, see, they're normal. I want to eat like that. That's, that isn't really normal. And those are the people I want to eat like. You know, my grandfather 
God rest his soul, was never more than 135 pounds. He was a very small man. I don't know how that ever happened. Everyone else in my family was large. But he would leave food on the plate. Now, he was probably the only normal eater in our family. You know, he ate a very moderate meal three times a day. I never wanted to eat like that. You know, that wasn't my idea of normal. My idea of normal is the way my brother-in-law eats because he's a very large man and very active and can eat large quantities of food. You know, it's back to that whole idea of a volume eater. So I know today that that's insanity and that that's not the kind of life that I was called to live. I'm supposed to kind of come to understand that the fuel, that the food that I'm going to eat is fuel for my body, my spirit and my soul. I eat the, the meals that are provided for me and then I go on with my life. Um, and I try to live that life sane too. The other thing I had to realize that not only in the area of food, but also in, in the way I ran my relationships and, you know, the way that I, I was at work and the way I am with my family. I was insane. You know, I placed um, unrealistic demands on people. I wanted what I wanted. And I didn't get it. And then I was angry and, and mad. So I've, I'm coming to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I feel sane on most days. I don't feel out of control. I admit defeat when I, you know, when I recognize it. If I come up against a brick wall and I think, God, I'm really stuck, I realize that I'm not going to get through it by bashing my head against it, that I need to do something different. Um, and usually it's asking a higher power to, to help me to let that go. The second step is also a challenge to people at different faith stages. Everybody comes in a different place. I think the step is real helpful in, in just letting you know that wherever you are on your journey, whether you're new, whether you were raised in the church your whole life, um, whether you never had any concept of God, that you are accepted and loved the way you are. And whatever your concept is, you're accepted and there's room for you. And that the awareness and the, and the relationship with the higher power will change as your journey goes on. Step three talks about made a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God. Step three for me is the willingness step. I have to be willing to do this. I have to be willing to get up in the morning and, and, and kind of make some kind of covenant with my higher power and ask for help. A lot of these first three steps is surrender and admission and acceptance of a help. I think we're so used to doing everything ourselves, you know, staying in isolation, staying in withdrawal from people, trying to do it all on my own. And then these three steps say to me, well, it's now time for me to begin to move out of that isolation and to kind of ask for help. So I need to have a willingness to ask God into my life. The whole effectiveness of the OA program, OA program is pretty much based on how earnest I am in the third step. I think that the third step is key, key in my recovery. I really need to be able to ask God to help me. You know, it, it's tough to, it, when I thought about speaking here, I think, you know, it's, it's the same stuff over and over and over again. I'm in the program 12 years, and I think, what am I going to say that's different? It is, there's nothing different. It's all right here in the book. The opportunity is there for everybody. There aren't select few. It's not like some get it and some don't. Everybody can get it. The steps are the same. I used to think, oh, if I had a better sponsor, if I had somebody who could teach me better, if I only had a better meaning, if I only had a better this, my sponsor once said to me, well, if you want, you, want to be a, you want a better sponsor, you want better this, then be a better sponsor. Be a better friend. And I thought, 
the nerve. <laughs> she telling me this, but it was really true. You know, do I want to learn the steps? Well, then I should read the steps. I, I just want to sit back and, you know, kind of lay back and wait for somebody to teach me these things. Well, I've kind of taken responsibility for myself. Go to a step meeting once a week. You know, listen to the people when they talk about it. Um, try to change. That's what I had to do. I, I mean, I've looked at these steps for a long time, and then I let the book go back, and then I don't read them. It's like, yeah, I know them. I could spat them off, one to 12. Well, that's fine, except that doesn't keep me abstinent. What keeps me abstinent is doing the steps. So the solution for me, you know, with these 12 steps, is, is the word, just do it. Whatever the solution is, whatever step works for you, whatever meeting, but I have to be committed to doing that. When I try to conform my will with God's will, it's amazing how my life goes a lot smoother. When, I don't, when I'm not resisting my food plan, when I'm not resisting the meetings, when I'm not resisting the phone calls, and I just accept that this is a part of my disease, this is a part of my recovery, my life goes a lot smoother. If I were a cancer patient or a leukemia patient or something, and I had to go to the hospital three days a week at 5 o'clock, I probably would be there every day, on time, ready, you know, and I wouldn't lay on a table and not let them plug the machine in. You know, I would go there and get the services I need. I had to think about that when I came to the program. I could come to the meeting and memorize the steps, but I never put the plug in. You know, I come late, I leave early, this OA doesn't work for me. When I moved to Connecticut, I was like complaining all over the place. The meetings aren't the same, this isn't like my home state, I can't do OA here. You know, and I thought to myself, you better get a grip fast because it isn't the people in the Connecticut OA that have a problem, it's you who has the problem. And I knew that if I didn't adjust to Connecticut OA, I'd have to adjust to a life of misery and unhappiness and probably obesity. And so I had to change my attitude. I had to ask God to help me to be willing and turn my life and my will over to the care of God and then get the help that I needed. You know, go to me. I don't want to drive 40 minutes to a meeting. Well, you know, I drive 40 minutes to a meeting now because I live way in the country and there aren't a lot of meetings around there. And then the meeting there I don't like. And it's like, well, then you better travel around and find people that you can make a connection with. You know, I don't have to have eight meetings a week, but I certainly need to have at least one. And I at least certainly need to have a number of people in my life who I can call on a regular basis and talk to them about my food. Do I ever get tired of doing the third step? Do I ever get tired of all this food stuff? Maybe I do for a moment, but I don't get tired of the new life that I have. That's what keeps me going. I like the life that I have. I like knowing that there's a higher power I can turn to. I like being able to say, God, I am powerless over this situation. You know, I like to travel. I like to go on vacation. And I know that in order for me to keep those things in my life, I must read the steps. And I must eat on a food plan. And I must go to those meetings. You know, I know that the program says these are all suggestions. And I took those suggestions. And now for me, they are musts. And that's what keeps me going. And so I don't really feel bogged down by this stuff. I really feel energized. I like the meetings. I liked coming here to, to be with you. I go to a lot of roundups and things at home. I stay pretty more active in the program. And I stay pretty close to the basics. Um, I think that the steps were outlined in order. They should be used in order. They, they kind of help me to, to set my life in order 
it's not only my food. I think the key with the 12 steps is that it, it helps me to keep the food in order, but then it helps me to move out into other areas of my life. You know, it teaches me how to live in a world that I really didn't know how to live in. I didn't get to be 130 pounds overweight because I was, you know, adjusting to, the, to life and society around me. I was unable to adjust or unable to fit in, and so therefore I continue to, to live in the substance and the addiction. So I don't have, like, good role models. I don't, I don't have, I came from an overreading background. You know, no one taught me how to turn my life and will over to God. No one told me how to surrender. No one told me how to do first things first. It wasn't until I came into OA and then it, it, the, the instructions were written down. I used to feel so out of place. I felt like I was born into this body and into this world, and I, had, I didn't have any tools. I didn't have a road map. Well, that's what these steps, I think, provide for me. If there's a problem in my life, I have some things tangible, like a book that I can pick up and read. And I know that the answers are in here. I don't think it's magic. I, I don't want anybody to think that. My life is difficult. There are stresses. There are problems. You know, the same crises that happen in your life happen in my life. The difference is that I, I go with the crisis a lot better. You know, I don't live in the negative thinking all the time. You know, I, I, came, I was supposed to come to, to, uh, to Ohio on Thursday night, and I needed to change that flight to Friday. When I got off the plane, Bev and Bobby said to me, why didn't you come in last night? I said, well, you know, life happens in between. And we all laughed. I mean, I, I didn't need to go into all the stuff that's happening back there that I need to rearrange and get here, but those things happen in my life, too. And when, when a crisis has happened, you know, like deaths happened in my family and tragedy happened last year, and I, I face that stuff better because of these simple steps. You know, I used to think that the program was much too simple, that once you read the 12 steps in the big book, what were you going to do for the rest of your life? You know, what, what else is there left to do? Well, I just kind of do it a day at a time, and I, and, I, and I do find the newness in it. It is repetitious, and it, sometimes it's even boring. But if it gets boring, I have to ask myself, what's going on with me that I find that this program is boring? Um, and if I stay bored, I get fat in a real hurry. So today, I, I do practice these steps. I, I pray. I ask God to help me. You know, and I just do it simple, like I, was, like I was talking last night about how I just say those prayers before the meal and, and ask for the simple things. The third step also talks about the serenity prayer. And that's when we really start to begin to, to understand that. It, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's a real hard thing, because there are a lot of things in this life that we do want to change. You know, we just like within our own family structures, we have children, we have spouses, you know, schools they choose, people they choose to date, the kids, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we don't, we can't change those things. And the, and the more that I resist, the more unhappy I am. And the more unhappy I am, the more chance there is for me to go back into the disease. The more that I'm able to accept the things that I can't change, the, the more serene I seem to stay. The, you know, the courage to change the things I can is also something that I've learned in this program. I never had courage to do anything. I never could confront anybody. I never could address any situation. Um, I was a pretty cowardly kind of person. I never wanted to, I never wanted to like ask for a raise or I never wanted to complain that I was being overworked and abused. I never, I never knew how to change anything. 
today I've learned how to do that. You know, I don't have to like barge in people's office and demand my rights and do this and that, but I, I know now that I can write letters or I can make phone calls or I can simply state how I feel. Very new behavior for me. You know, I, I live in a committed relationship and very difficult to say to my partner, I'm unhappy with, I'm, I'm unhappy with the way I feel today. You know, instead of saying, you did this, you did that. You did this. You know, I have the courage now to just confront another human being and say, you know, I felt disappointed when you didn't show up on time. You know, I feel disappointed that you opt to hang out with the guys and you're not here with me. I felt, you know, what, what do I feel about this? You know, I'm able to call my father and mother and be honest and say, I really would love to be down there on the holiday but I can't come until 4 o'clock, so eat without me. Instead of saying, oh, yes, yes, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be there, when I know I'm not going to be there until 3.30, and everything's going to be late and behind. And, but, so now I, now I find that courage to address situations when they come up. Not perfect. You know, I still, I still don't do it always as, as quickly as I need to, but I'm starting to get there. Um, and the wisdom to know the difference, that's the magic for me. I don't always know the difference. I don't know. And I pray for wisdom. I pray for understanding. You know, sometimes I speak out at the wrong times, and I wish, God, I just wish I had just shut my big mouth. Um, sometimes I, I have an opinion about things that, that maybe I don't need to have my opinion about, or I could have my opinion, but I don't need to express that opinion. I think that it comes in time. All this stuff, in, in one way or another, affects my eating. When I when my food is in order, my life is in order. When my food is not in order, my life is not in order. And I don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but I know that they go hand in hand. I know that if I'm unhappy with my food and my food is spotty and there's a problem, you could bet that there's a problem in my life and I'm not dealing with it really well. And I can sense that now by the uncomfortableness in my my body. I get fidgety. I get nervous. It's 11 o'clock and I want lunch. I'm thinking, oh, is it lunchtime? It's like, we shouldn't even be thinking about lunch yet, you know? Is it 3 o'clock? Is it time to go home? No, when it's not time to go home, you know? And, and then I have to look at that behavior and, and, and check it out. Because if I ignore those things, then there's more opportunity for me to end back up in the food. The weighing and the measuring of the food in my early life was a real discipline that has helped me and, and continues to help me through my life. I don't weigh and measure my food every day when I'm out and all those kind of things, but I'm pretty consistent when I'm home. But that basic discipline has helped me get through the rest of the things in my everyday life. I have that discipline. I have this discipline. Every day I say those first three steps. And then I say them again sometimes. I mean, I need to do the first step a couple times a day. Sometimes I see things that I want or things that look attractive to me, and I need to remind myself, I am really powerless over this. Sometimes it's kind of like a little game, you know? It's as if, like if, if, if the carbohydrate sits on the table, then I'm still in control and I'm fine. Once I start to eat it, I'm going to go out of control. I used to think that that wasn't true, and now today I try not to, I try not to challenge that because I try to accept that it's really going to happen, and that once it happens, I could know these steps, I could read these steps, but if I'm acting out in the food, the stuff that I'm learning, it's not that it's no good, but it's just it's not as effective for me. Um, there's a certain clarity 
that comes with, with, with being abstinent. There's a certain um, freedom that comes. And if my food is in order, I find that I'm, I'm able to hear what God is trying to say to me. I'm able to, to understand what I need to do, the decisions that need to be made in my life. So I think that, you know, that working these steps, learning the serenity prayer, and, and turning my life and my will over to God has really, has really helped me um, in my life. I don't really have a whole lot more to say on these steps. I, um, I think that they're pretty self-explanatory. I try to just review them briefly, how they work in my life. And I think that it's real important that, that people do what's right for them. I know that the people in these rooms are, you're all in different spaces. Some people are new in the program, some people have been in many years, and a few of you are in between, you've been in and out of the program. I'm sure you've heard all about these steps in different places and different times. And I have too, you know, I've been really deep into them and then I ignore them for a while. But when I was asked to speak and I really thought about what is the solution, I really came back to this because I think it's the, the one thing that stays constant in the program. You know, years are going to come and years are going to go and years are going to come and years are going to go and there aren't new things. So I needed to create a newness for myself, an enthusiasm, you know, a richness for life. And, and I get that by coming to the meetings and learning about the steps. If you're new, you know, you look at the steps and you think, oh my God, all these 12 steps, this is too much, I can't do this, I can't read all this. That's what I did. So I didn't do the steps right away. I did the first step. Every day I admitted I was powerless over food. That's why the, the book is written so well, and I think that, that the 12-step programs have been so affected, is because people aren't made to do anything. You know, I'm not here telling you, you better do it the way I did it. I'm just here suggesting that, that, it, that this is what I've done and it's worked for me, and that if you opt to do it, it could help you or it could work for you. They help because there's something else to do. My sponsor always told me, you can't have two thoughts at one time. So if you're obsessed with the food and you pick up the book and read step three for the 18th time, you know, for that period of time, you're not active in the disease. You know, and, and it's kind of become like a habit. I, I'm not perfect with this, but I try to. I try to do it in the morning. I try to read over the step. Um, in the beginning of the, in the book where they just outline them, I find that really very helpful just to kind of keep yourself centered. Um, if you're struggling with a religious conflict because you were raised a certain way, I found real solace in that because I was, re I was raised in a traditional church which, which I really felt uptight about. You know, um, there was a lot of fear of God, hatred of God, punishment of God, and then I come into a group and people want to love me and kiss me, hug me, tell me God loves me, and I thought, not the God that I went to school with. <laughs> so I, I needed to create a higher power, something that was going to work for me. Um, Sometimes this is a, it's supposed to not be a Christian program, but we use all the Christian prayers, and I know that some of you are not Christian, and, which is a great opportunity to wish you all a Rosh Hashanah. I know that this is the, the holiday. Um, you know, but we need to make allowances. You know, we, we do say those Christian prayers, and I know in some meetings they've gone to saying the, um, the serenity prayer twice, and, and, but there is room in the, in the rooms for all people you know, regardless of what your faith was, regardless of what your religious tradition is. And I think that that's a key component. And I think that that's why people continue to come and that the 12-step programs have grown and, and are a lot stronger, I think, than, than a lot of other religious organizations. I don't knock 
religion, I think it's a wonderful thing if you choose to have that. But if you don't choose to have it, you read through step two and step three, and it really clearly states that you don't need that to stay abstinent or get abstinent. I mean, I know a lot of people came in agnostic or atheist. They weren't going to believe in God, and then they thought that they couldn't stay abstinent because they didn't have a, a belief in God. And the book lets us know that it doesn't have to be that God of our childhood, that we could create our new higher power. Um, it's taken me many years to get comfortable with the, the power that I have now in my life, which I choose to call God, and I, and I rely on that. It's, my higher power is it's like, um, like a companion or a friend. I really feel that there's somebody with me as opposed to just being left alone in isolation. And, and when I'm unhappy and when I'm miserable and when my life is not you know, happy and joyous and free, I still feel that presence. I know that, that God sustains me through those dark times. And, you know, and, and repetition, I think, as a compulsive overeater, is really good for me. I'm almost grateful that they don't come out with a new volume every year because I'm a procrastinator too, and I would not read volume after volume after volume. I'm lucky if I read the same volume day after day after day. You know, and I think that there's enough material in these 12 steps to kind of get the basis. And then when we get adjusted to that, if we choose, which I'll talk about in the 12 step, if we choose to go on and to, to get into other resources and read other spiritual journals and attend other spiritual things, I think that's fabulous. I do that and I think it really helps me. But I never abandon the basics. You know, I think I came into OA first. It was the, 12 step, the first 12 step program that I ever attended. And I still feel it's kind of like my home base. I, I never forget the warmth and the comfort that I felt from those people in the Red Bank, New Jersey meeting, you know, that I attended for the first time 12 years ago. I can still see those, that little man, Ed Bonnie, who came to help me that time I had my relapse, and the women who just, like, encouraged me to keep coming back. That, that is like engraved in my soul. And I know that no matter how good my life gets or how far out there I get or how, other, how, how deep I get into other spiritual practices, I know that the bottom line for me is I am powerless over food. Because no matter what kind of spiritual journey I'm on or what other kind of guru I'm going to see or what kind of channel I'm involved with, if I'm not putting the food down, it's over for me, you know. And I, I believe that, because once I start eating, my connection gets severed, you know, snipped right away. And I don't know why that happens. And it doesn't happen for everybody. I mean, other people tell me different things that, you know, but for me, that's what happens. I don't, I don't really feel connected to my higher power when I'm, when I'm acting out. And I can remember that. I can remember, you know, in the middle of binges, you know, trying to pray and saying, I know this is ridiculous. I know I'm supposed to ask for help. I know you could help me, but I don't want to be helped. You know, and I almost feel embarrassed that God is watching me destroy myself. You know, I think to myself, oh, you know, like, because I, I've come to understand that, that my life is a gift, that all our lives are a gift. And, and when I destroy it or I abuse it or I'm mean to it, I think, this is terrible. You know, like, I don't treat other people this badly. I wouldn't shove this kind of poison down other people but I do it to myself. Um, the program kind of helps me to love myself enough that I don't have to do that. I came to Ohio to give back what, I, what I've received, and, and that's why I chose the steps um, to speak on, because I really do think that, that that's the solution. I think that reading the books a little bit every day, and the big book I think is a real good tool too, just to kind of keep myself 
fresh with what's really going on because it does get boring. You know, it gets tiring. And the journey gets long and our lives get busy and we don't have time to go to meetings and we don't have time to make three, you know, who can make three or four phone calls a day? You work nine to five, you get home, you make dinner before you know it, it's 9.30 and you gotta, everybody has to go to bed. And, you know, like, you know, it's ideal when I was single and I lived alone, I made eight phone calls a day, you know. But now, there's a lot of life in that day. But the books, you know, having the book to read, and I'm not a big reader. I'm the last person that should be talking about reading. I, um, to read, but I read a little. I don't read everything. You know, I'm not a volume reader. I buy all the books. I'm a book collector. I got every book, every pamphlet, every everything, and, but I flip through them. But the big book and the 12 and 12, I use them. I go to one step meeting a week. Um, you know, it's the same old meeting. You know, you go to 12 and then you start again. But people say different things now. And and I hear new things. And then, and it also helps me to remember. You know, every time we come to step one, I remember, oh, powers over food. Oh, that's right. I remember I was 255 pounds, eating out of control. You know, and it kind of helps me to keep my memory green. I think that that's what the steps do, too. You, you, I need to remember what it's about for me. I need to remember where I came from. And I need to always remember that I could go back there. And it's a very short trip back. And I don't really wish to take it. So I come. I ask God for help in the morning, I go over these three steps, and I thank God at night. And I thank you all, and I'll talk to you again tonight. Thank you. I grabbed it. <laughs> we'll just swing it over here. A couple questions in the ask it basket. We've got more. Anybody else? Yes. Okay. You want to do that? Sure. So you want to read them? Okay. I'll go over here. Is it personal sense of them? Would you please? Or I'll stand here. Well, why don't you read them? Because we'll be in the mic. Oh, my God. This is going to be a very long question, he says. <laughs> this one says, how do you do a spiritual inventory? Is there a list of questions? How do I do a spiritual inventory? I will talk more about this when I, I'll, I'll, I will talk about this briefly, but I will talk about this when I do a step 10. Yes, there is a list of questions. It's right in the book. Um, there are probably other lists of questions. I think I don't know what you have here, but I know in our back home we have checklists, daily review, anger, resentment, jealousy, blah 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 blah. You know, and there's a balance sheet. These were your liabilities, and this is where your assets. And you're supposed to, you know, like kind of they list them opposite: um, willing, unwilling, um, greedy, not greedy, selfish, unselfish. And so you could kind of watch your behavior. So yes, there are tools that exist. I don't know. Hazelton puts out some brochures. Um, the 10th step talks about taking a, a continuous inventory. In the big book, it actually asks questions about how, who, what, and when did I do this? You know, in my sexual relationships, was I selfish, demanding, you know, um, things like that. So yeah, there, there are um, questions. If that didn't answer your question, 
if you are the person see me later and I can help you find the pages right in the book because I don't have them memorized. But this certainly is a list. In the fourth step, in the big book, they have, uh, um, they break it down real clear and they, they ask you very specific questions. You know, look at yourself and ask yourself that. I hope that answered your question. I don't know if that's a spiritual inventory, but I think it is because I think when you look at yourself, you look at your character defects, you look at your liabilities and your assets, you're really starting to focus on yourself. And the key for me was changing them. If I couldn't identify my faults and accept them, then I couldn't change them. You know, when I first came into the program and it says, you know, an inventory of the people you have harmed, I thought that meant they harmed me. And I wrote down all the people I thought hurt me. You know, and I boy, I was going to call them up, and then I realized it said. <laughs> when when I read it a little closer, and it said I was supposed to write down the things I did, and then call them up and apologize. I wasn't in a big hurry to do it, so I did. So I changed my mind. Um, what is involved in a relationship with the sponsor? Uh, let me see something. Sometimes I wish my sponsor would call me more, especially when just beginning. What is involved in a relationship with a sponsor? You're going to get a hundred answers to this, okay? Because there is no real guidelines that says this is what a sponsor is and this is the sponsor's requirements and there's no committee that, you know, like reviews the sponsor and says, okay, this person qualifies. We, we don't have anything like that. I don't even think that the 12 and 12 or the big book really mentions it. There is pamphlets, again, put out by Hazleton. It's, you know, it's sponsors. It says a sponsor's guide to sponsoring, and it has the 12 steps, and then there's a bunch of questions, and then there's the next step, and then there's a bunch of questions. And this guy, Ed Bonney, who was my sponsor way back then, that's what we did. You know, and he gave me a booklet, and he had a booklet, and we did step one. Then he asked, you know, I went home, and I wrote down these questions, and I met him, and then we read them. And I went home and did step two. And so I did work with someone like that. I still, I feel like this person sometimes. Like, I wish that there was somebody in Connecticut who would just be my sponsor like I were 90 days sober. But there isn't because I'm not 90 days sober. So my, my, my answer to you is um, no, there isn't any guidelines. If you wish that your sponsor would call you more, maybe you could opt to call more people. You know, maybe you could ask her. But it really isn't the sponsor's responsibility to be schlepping you around. It was my sponsor's responsibility to schlep me around. That's what I felt. You know, and when I first got abstinent, people drove me everywhere. I didn't have a car. You know, I was pathetic. But I realized today that that is not... <laughs> it's true, I was. I, I'm embarrassed, but it's true. I don't, I don't expect these people to help me. But, you know, I think sometimes it, it comes down to me putting it out, too. But when I was new, I was intimidated. I mean, you never know it today. But I didn't want to call people. I was embarrassed. I wanted people to, like, talk to me. I wanted people to, like, help me and be there for me. And I was, like, mousy. You know, I didn't want to raise my hand. I didn't want to ask for help. And I was embarrassed to call. If someone called me, I would talk to them. You know, and I wish that my sponsor did call me more, and I wish that more people would call me. And here I am, like, uh, nine years sober. And when I moved to Connecticut, I was still crying every day people didn't call me. I didn't like them here in Connecticut. If they're not, they're cold here. This isn't like New Jersey. Why don't people call me back? Well, you know, people have a life, Lucille. They're going about their life. And, you know, they'll call if they have time. And if you need help and these people aren't available, then it was my responsibility to, to call other people. Um, and if you're just beginning, keep coming. If you're new 
and you don't have friends and you come to this thing and everybody else is palling around together and you feel left out and you feel sad, I, my heart goes out to you because I know that feeling. But it'll go away if you keep coming. Because if you keep coming, you're going to know people. And if you keep coming and you go to a home meeting, you stick with one meeting, you go every Tuesday night from 8 to 9.30. Whether you like the people or not, it doesn't matter. You just go every Tuesday night and you get used to them and you see them. Next year you'll be on this retreat and you'll be probably thinner and you'll probably be happier and you'll be with people and you'll be like with the clique or with the group or something. But in the beginning, I think we lose people because we don't have like a welcoming committee and a greeting committee. And, you know, there's just so many other things to do and everybody has to take care of their own program that we're not running around and people fall through the cracks. So if you're new and you feel like that, you know, try to keep coming. And maybe if you go to your meeting, this is just a suggestion, but you may see somebody. People may talk about the steps or somebody may be a step sponsor. You know, somebody who, like maybe somebody's retired or maybe somebody's home with a small baby and they have more time. Those are the people that you might want to ask if they would sponsor you. You know, like you, maybe, you, maybe you're sponsor somebody who only has 15 minutes in the morning. And if you don't call at 7 o'clock, you never get her. You know, that happened to me. You know, I, I, I have a sponsor and she is a teacher. And, you know, in the summer it's great. She's always around. And in the winter she goes to school at like 6 o'clock. So I just said, you know, I, I really like you, but I'm going to get someone else to call. Who's home? You know, like I, I, I have a sponsor who's like in and out a lot. She's in real estate. So... It's nice because I always could get her, but that doesn't always be the case. So if you feel like you're not getting what you need, it's your responsibility to try to get what you need. Um, and maybe you can get a few phone numbers or ask people if they're available during the day. We, in our group, there's a woman who works the night shift, and she always says, anybody who's in trouble, call me in the middle of the night because she's, you know, watching. Everybody's asleep. She sits there. You know, she works night shift, and she, everybody, you know, the people who have night eating where we are, call this lady at night. 11 o'clock, she's up, so she works through the night. So, so there are ways, you know, there are people, but it's just a matter of um, making those connections. Keep coming back, though. Please don't be discouraged because we are friendly people. We just don't know who you are. But um, if you stick around, you'll be loved. And Okay, now I have to read this volume question. This is going to be a very long question because it is very important to me. Okay. I lost a lot of weight on the How Food Plan our modern-day gray sheet. Okay, I know what the HAL program is and ate on it myself at one time. During the time when OA was going through a lot of upheaval over abstinence and the steps, um, and I gained it all back. Okay, you are maintaining and say you could never do it that way again. What if I couldn't either but can't find another way? Um... I just want to say this. If you wrote this sheet, please find me, and we'll talk about it, um, because I don't know that my response is going to be clear enough. Um, okay, it says, I gained it all back. You are maintaining and say you could never do it that way again. What if I can't either, but can't find any other way? Every thin speaker I've ever heard lost it that way and then found their spirituality. Why is it that everyone who says that the steps are the way to recovery is still overweight? A food plan that is in between how and binging is more like a maintaining diet. I am not compulsively overeating, but am not losing. I am working the steps to getting sane, but I can't find any other way to lose weight that doesn't make me feel obsessed and, 
and deprived like I did when I was on the How Food Plan. What are your feelings on the subject, and do you have any insight or suggestions for this dilemma? I don't know if I really understand this exactly, um, just because I'm having trouble with just the words and reading it. Um, I ate on, I, I was in the How program for a while because it came to New Jersey and that's what everybody was doing. And I found it too rigid for me. I also understand what you're saying about if people choose to just live in the steps but don't gain the weight. I think that there really has to be a balance. Last night I said that I hope that I never put all on that weight back on because I didn't know how I could do it or if I could do that again. If I did put on 125 pounds, it may be the only way that I could lose it again. I don't know. So I do understand that this is a serious dilemma. I think that the steps are key. I think you have to work the steps. But I always think you have to work a food plan. You must, I must, I must. I must work a food plan. That food plan can be flexible, but I must have something. If you feel deprived um, and obsessed on a, on a food plan that's a rigid food plan, then maybe you need to find another food plan. But if you find another food plan and it's too loose, then you never lose the weight. See, so you're still really locked in the same cycle. You know, first I'm obsessed, then I eat, then I'm in the thing, and ying, 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 ying. So it is a vicious cycle, and it, it is a serious dilemma. I, I would guess, and I'm, I don't know this for a fact because it hasn't happened in my life, I have gained 20 pounds in a relapse, and when I did that, I did go back on the strict thing, the plan. Okay, when I gained 20 pounds, I went to a gray sheet meeting in a little church tucked far away. They don't even advertise because everybody hates them. <laughs> but I went there. And I resented it, and they say, hi, my name is Isabel. I weighed and measured three meals a day, ate nothing in between, and I claimed my seat. And if you didn't do that, you couldn't speak. But you know what? Every day, at, or everybody in that room said that. My name is so-and-so. I ate three meals a day. I didn't eat in between. I'm abstinent, and I claim my seat. I don't eat no matter what. I don't eat no matter what. I didn't like that, but you know what? I got abstinent again. I can't do that forever. I don't want to do that forever. But when I was in serious trouble, I went back to the basics. When I get in minor trouble, like when I go on vacation and I come back and I'm four pounds heavier, I eat on the modified gray sheet. I don't call it that, but I just cut it. I just modify the plan that I eat on, and I make it lean. Because the whole thing about the body is you can only put so much food in to get smaller. You know, it, it doesn't matter what your attitude is. If you eat this much food, you're going to stay this big. You know, and, and I had to really understand that. So I know that you're suffering. I know that you're in the room, and my heart goes out to you. There are no easy answers. Um, it is a real struggle. There is a solution. I really think that there is a solution. I think that it's a day at a time. It isn't easy. Once you put on all that weight to break the habit, it's a bitch to stop eating once you're really active again. We all know that. But it can happen. I think you just... You have to try to find some way to do it. Like when I, when I had my serious relapse, I kind of like needed a jump start. I needed to pretend that I was brand new. I don't know nothing. I didn't tell people I had a lot of years. When I moved to Connecticut, I did the same thing. First I went there and I knew everything and it didn't work. And then I said to myself, this is the end. When you go to the meeting today, you say, hi, my name is Lucille. I'm new. 
Oh, you're new? Yeah, I'm new in the area, but I said I'm new. I didn't need to say, my name is Lucy, I've been in the program 10 years. Because I just needed to just like be treated like I was new. You know, and people try to help me, and oh, you know, there's a meeting tomorrow. And, and I acted like, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, because I needed to be helped. And I think that sometimes that's what it takes when we go into a serious relapse, that we really need to kind of, I know you can't ever re erase everything you've learned, but I think I ne you need to just go back to the step one, realize that I am powerless over this food, and that this disease has really whipped me again, um, and try to find something in between. There is an in-between because there are thin speakers. There are people who work the 12 steps and who have maintained and, and have stayed thin for a long time. Now, there are fat serenity groups where I come from, too. There are people who never lose weight. When I go back to Red Bank to visit my family, there are people that I got, got abstinent with 12 years ago that are bigger than they were when I was there 12 years ago. And they love the program. They're working the steps. They're happy. They're serene. Their life's wonderful. They're still all overweight. I can't stand in judgment of those people. I just have to say, thank you, God, that I got it the way I got it. I pray for those people, but I don't do it the way they do it. You know, I find the food plan that is going to match my serenity. I don't feel serene when I'm eating, overeating. I just, I really don't. And if those people do, that's okay for them. Um, so if you're here, please keep coming. If you want to talk to me, I'm available during the times I just hang out in the halls and uh, we'll talk about it. <laughs> and uh, I'm easy to find. We can try to talk about it, but there is no easy answer, I'm sure. Does anyone else have a question they didn't write down? They just want to ask something? At breakfast, somebody asked me if I still see my family, and the answer to that question is yes. I will address that. When I was first abstinent and brand new, I didn't see my family. For that first year and a half, I didn't go home. Um, to eat. I lived about four miles away from my family at that time, but I opted not to eat with them because it was too stressful. You know, I come from a large Italian family and they weren't going to change their eating habits because I went on a little diet again. So I didn't go home. I just told my mother, no, I'm sorry, but I saw them. You know, I would see my mother, but we wouldn't, we would go shopping or we would do this and I'd see my grandmother and I would talk to my sisters on the phone or something, but I didn't, I didn't choose to eat with them because I felt too deprived and I felt too out of control and I either binged with them at the meal because I just felt so ostracized, or when I went home I acted out because I was so good. So it was too much of a pressure. But now I eat with them. I live in Connecticut, they live in Jersey, so I, um, I don't see them very often, but often enough I see them probably every six to eight weeks. I, and I have so many siblings that you know, we go to weddings every year for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> So I see them at events, and, and I like them. You know, I like them. They're active, and some of them are active in diseases, and some of them are f overweight, and I share, I don't know if I share it or not, but I have a sister who's um, doing one of the OptiFast kind of programs. She hasn't eaten since March. She looked beautiful at the wedding. She needs to lose about 20 more pounds. She's probably lost almost 60. My heart goes out to her because she will have to eat again, friends. She can't drink forever. Um, she doesn't know how to eat. She said to me, I don't even know what a carbohydrate is. I said, yeah, I know. I never knew what one is either. You know, I thought it was all sweets. I didn't know that they had real food she could eat. So, so I mean, like, I have those people in my life. I go there. She was all excited. She told me she was going on the plane. I bit my tongue. I just bit hard. I said, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I came home, and I kept saying, I can't believe she's going to do this. I called my sponsor. You can't believe what she's going to do. Twelve years I'm in this program. She didn't learn anything. I'm like, you know, I'm in a rage about this. And I said to myself, well, we're not living and let live here. I said, but I didn't say anything to her. I just said, good luck. And 
I sent a little card, support card, you know, those little diet cards. I always wanted to send them to somebody. I never knew where to send them to. <laughs> so I sent her these little things, you know, I'm thinking about you, hope you're doing well, you know, we're with you. And my other three sisters are sabotaging that to death, you know, like, oh, you better stop now because, you know, now she's getting into our... Our, our numbers and they don't like that when you know when my other two sisters are fashion queens and when they when when anybody enters into where they are they don't like that so um so they're they're telling her i heard them at the wedding and you don't need to eat anymore you know you don't you you need to start eating now you look fine you don't need to lose any more weight but um she's gonna but i do i do mingle with them i do see them i love them I, my heart goes out to them um we had a big joke three months ago. We, we, my cousin got married, so we all met there. So that was three months until my sister's wedding. And my younger sister was saying, we're going to do an ad for Slim Fast. The Donahue family loses 1,000 pounds on the Slim Fast <laughs> because there are eight of us, and everybody has a, sip, a partner. So that's 16. And out of that 16, 15 were on diets. Fifteen people in my family went on a diet for that wedding. You know, hey, and I told my mother, thank God you have six children because if not, we'd all be 400 pounds. If we didn't have to lose 30 pounds for every wedding, you know, if there weren't weddings and baptisms and christenings, I, I, I fear to think how big we would be. But that's what happens. My cousin gets married a year from November and already they're on the diet. Well, you know, I got, he's, he's going to the gym every day and... Uh, you know, and I laughed. My sister, you know, she was engaged. Last year, she went on the diet. She, she was the same weight last Sunday at her wedding she was a year ago when she started going to the, to the gym. But she worried about it for a year. Every day for a year she was on a diet, she didn't lose one pound. <laughs> now, you know, and I, I see that, and I joke about it here with you because, you know, you understand all this stuff. But my heart goes out to them. I don't, you know, I don't joke with them. I encourage them. They know where OA is. I don't say, hey, you know, you ought to do it the way I do it. I, I mind my own business because they want to go, they'll go. And if they don't want to go, they don't have to go. And, when I, and I know when to go home. I don't sleep over. I go to the hotel. It costs me money to go to the hotel. And you know what? I'm well worth it. I am well worth it. I go there. I have my little visit. And I say goodnight. Thank you very much. And I drive a quarter mile down the road. And I go to the hotel because I don't want to be alone in the house with the food. I don't want to be there with all those emotions. A lot of emotional stuff comes up when you go back, you know. You see your mother, you see your father, you see your grandmother, somebody just died, there's a bad feeling about this, there's a divorce, there's a this, there's a that. You know, that all happens in my family, believe me. You know, I have five brothers and sisters and we don't have a dull moment. You know, and when I get home, boy, they're like whipping me right in. My mother, do you know what your sister said? I listen, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You better call her, you better, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I don't do any of it, you know, because I, because mm -hmm. it isn't my place anymore. I used to always be in the middle of all that stuff. Always, call the seal, you know, there I was, fixing everybody and eating like crazy, you know, because I'm out there doing their life. Now I do my life. And if I really feel that there's a problem, I will talk to my sister because I want to talk to her, not because my mother you know, has zoomed out, assessed the situation, and has decided <laughs> that I'm going to fix it. I don't do that. If, if I really think that there's a need and that maybe, you know, maybe if I talk, well, we just talk about something, or if somebody wants to talk to me, that's fine. But I do not assume responsibility for their lives. Um, you know, it's, it, it's going to go on a long time. Okay, does anyone else have a question they want to ask? If not, it's... Uh, their turn to share, right?
We had a, one of the questions was regarding a sponsor, and I just want to direct your attention to Sponsors Workshop. And um, I think that Judy is the person who is organizing this. So if you want to talk more to Judy, she can give you more information. But there are flyers up here, and we'll have more flyers at the Greater Dayton Intergroup. Um, we have some time now for sharing, and we're going to have our raffle too. But I would like to allow people who would like to share to be able to do so. And remember that we can turn the tape off if you don't want to be taped. So I'm not going to be stampeded, am I? <laughs> want to do the raffle? <laughs> That's Okay, let's do that. Let's do the raffle, and then we can break. At 11.30, we have a guided meditation that is optional. At 1.45, we'll, we will meet back here, and Bobby will direct us into the workshops. So um, we'll do our raffle. Um, is, is there anyone here who didn't get an opportunity to put a raffle ticket into the box or didn't get a raffle ticket? You have yours? Is that your copy of your ticket? Then let's put it in the box. Okay. Who wants to do this? I need a volunteer. Patty will volunteer. You don't know what that entails. I don't know why I think I need this. The guided meditation is the room, as you come down the steps, there is a big blue sign on the room right across the hallway from the staircase. It says guided meditation. It's right down here. I hope I'm pointing right. Okay. We have four books. Donated by the bookstore. First person's name called gets first choice. If you have these books already, these are wonderful as gifts for sponsorees or newcomers. First winner. Wonderful, I can't read. Okay, Mary Badger. I want this for the car. Okay. I keep the black. I have the other one, but I want one to keep Next winner, Joyce Williams. Connie. And our final winner, Sandy M. 
go. Okay, we had been scheduled till 11 o'clock. Truly, if there's something that you feel like you want to share, I would really love to hear you. It's doing a service. What you think may be insignificant may be something really important to somebody else. I know a lot of times you, you get overwhelmed with how many people are in the room. It's not that bad. You get used to it, trust me. And really do think of the fact that your words can reach out and touch someone else. So I'm going to sit down and um, I'll give you a couple minutes and then I'll wing it again. Hi everyone, my name is Eileen and I'm a very grateful recovering compulsive overeater. This is not ego, because if it was ego, my heart wouldn't be going like this, <laughs> I don't think. I, I uh, just want, I didn't want to be remiss in saying that um, the sharing done by Lucille has been very, very important to me. Um, I've been in the program for a long time, and, and I guess I've shared with her and in, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, I was new to this program, but I guess maybe my ego came up and I said, you know, I've... I have program, in other words, you don't have to start all over with me, but I wasn't getting what I needed because, uh, and I needed a lot in the beginning uh, with abstinence and everything, and um, that's what I think is important to ask for what you need, and uh, I just assumed that people would uh, give me what I needed. I didn't know what they meant by abstinence because I was looking for the perfect food plan, and um, you know, I had I asked uh, different people, what what is what is your abstinence? What do you do? What what does it mean to you? Even though it was read, I didn't understand it, and um, um, I found a food plan for myself, and I've changed it a little bit here and there, and um, I don't do it perfectly today. Uh, I I felt though when I was doing it perfectly for the five months I was doing it perfectly that, you know, I found all the, the wonderful things that were going on, the serenity you were talking about and all the, all the uh, good things, and, and I didn't worry about things that were happening to me. But um, uh, the first three steps that, that you were talking about are so important to me um, that I can't do it alone. They were the surrender steps for me, and, um, and I didn't surrender without a fight. You know, I mean, I, re I remember listening to tapes where they were talking about, you know, if there's, if you want a wonderful way of life and you want to uh, be the person like you've never been before and everything, here's the simple program, here's the steps, you know. All you have to do is just work at these steps and you're going to have a life like you've never known before. And I said, oh, no, no, I don't want the steps. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't want that. I, you know, I wanted the pain and everything that I was used to. I wanted to hold on to my old ideas and not do what was told me to do. You know, just if I would stop fighting and give up, you know, then it would come to me. And I fought that, that step one. Um, that I was powerless over food and that my life had become unmanageable. To me, it was a two-part thing and I couldn't swallow it whole. I was, I, if I could get my life together, you know, then I could probably eat socially. You know, I could eat, or I, you know, I could do it, uh, I wouldn't have to worry about it. And um, not, you know, and I never was brought, I was brought up by two compulsive overeaters. And so, you know, um, I didn't know what uh, unmanageability meant. 
you know, I mean, my, because that's what we lived every day, I thought that was probably manageability. I mean, they were living, they were getting through. They both died real young um, from uh, food-related uh, diseases. And, um, you know, th this, this God thing, the only time I ever heard the word God, it was followed by another word in my house. My father used the word goddamn all the time, you know, God, I mean, everything was, and I, and I didn't know, I always prayed to God, though, believe it or not, I said, you know, God, give me this, give me that, and when he didn't deliver, I said, there's no God, there's no, he's not doing for me what, you know, I wanted him to do, so uh, he really, he can't be there, so I was agnostic when I came here. Didn't realize, realize that if I had just prayed the third step prayer that, you know, do with me as thou wilt. Do, do with whatever, you know, is to be done. And then, and then see what would come through, the light that would come through or whatever. And, and realize that what was happening, as long as it was good orderly direction, that was God working in my life. I didn't realize that was what God was. That was meditating or that, you know, was letting the light come through letting him show me parts of myself that I was too afraid to look at. You know, the honest, the honesty. You know, seeking the truth about myself is my spirituality. And, um, and without that, you know, I have nothing. And he's only revealing things to me as I can handle them. It took me nine years to start dealing with this addiction and all the ramifications that came with it, taking a look at being an adult child of issues taking a look at, um, at uh, the painful past and how it related to me. But it was so, it was so, I was so happy to do that because when I, when I could see what, what brought me to where I was today, the things that, uh, the adult child of issues, it was just a, an awareness that, that has helped me grown, grow. And, you know, without this program and without those th first three steps, like you say, when I get away from it, when I ease God out, and that's only when I get tangled up into life and things happening and that I don't belong into. I mean, that's a luxury for other people. I can't get tangled up into everybody else's business. But when I do, I ease God out. And uh, when I do that, everything goes to pot. And then I'm not doing it perfectly, so why do it at all? But I, uh, I'm getting a little better at it only because I realize I can't do it alone. You know, and... and God is not the only sustaining power for me. It has to be skin-covered things walking around helping me. And because you may say something that your God has given to you that's going to help me. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Patty, gratefully recovering compulsive overeater. Hi, Patty. Ooh, all those friendly faces out there. I uh, wanted to address the issue, the question that was asked about the how and the and working that program and then getting the spirituality and uh, relapse and all. I've been down that path. When I first came in, I I just had the three meals, nothing in between, one day at a time, three oh one, and I lost and um, life happened, big time. And I slowly gained it back. And it wasn't that I wasn't watching what I was eating. It's just that, well, I would feel sorry for myself. So a little bit more today would be okay. And maybe sometimes I didn't even realize I was doing that. And I think when you're new, you're still in denial. You know, you can be old and still in denial. You know, depends on how, 
how well you are where you are. And um, I've been in seven years. It'll be this November. And um, I feel where I am that I have always worked my program to the best of my ability where I was. And then during that relapse time, I maintained for like a year and a half, two years, and, and it gets crazy because you think, what do I do now, you know? I, God, I don't want to give up anymore. It's too painful. I know, what else do I need to give up? You know, should I just quit eating? So I found how, and how was my miracle. How got me back to what was quote-unquote abstinence. And I don't know where our heads are, you know, each space of growth that we get into were our minds are in that place too and at that time that was great for me but I found uh, again life happened and again even though it was it was like one slip but because I was who I was where I was it was disaster and it was starting all over and it was shame on you you should have known better and then I realized two years later, that that was a shame attack. But at the time, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what the heck was going on. I just fell into that, and I accepted that shame attack because at the time, that's what it, where I was. And slowly, after about a year and a half, the weight started coming back on. Thank God, you know, it was a lower weight than to, I would always be afraid that every time I would lose that I would gain it back, and maybe I just was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I don't know. But in answer to the spirituality part of that, if you think about it when you're in how you do the first three steps, and the third step is the spirituality step. And so you do get spirituality. In the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, then are after you do all those, you get the promises. And it, it doesn't say anything about where you are weight-wise. And... I know that we come in with that top number one on our list is to lose weight. But today, where I am, my life is so much better, and I know the weight will, will also go. Uh, God has a great sense of humor <laughs> sometimes. And when you pray for something for so long, and it's his time, and you get it, it may not be the way you want it, but you still end up getting it and I've got it. So the weight is going again. But the spirituality part and the emotional part is so much better. And I just can't tell you the growth in those directions. And somebody once said to me, two out of three is not bad. Can you be happy with that? And then at the time, I couldn't. It wasn't enough because I had to have my three-legged stool had to be level. And I didn't want to sit like this. So I kept striving for the physical, and uh, apparently it wasn't my time, or God's time rather. So today, I just try, my goal, I never had a goal before either, except to lose weight. Um, my goal today is to stay in God's will for my life and out of my willfulness. And I remember the day that I realized that God gave us this wonderful gift of free will, and that it was so strong, it could keep him out. And when I realized that, it was really scary because I used it that way for years. 
And so I had to start changing that around and allowing God into my life and then allowing my will to align up with his. And that's kind of my goal each day is that I stay in God's will and out of mine. Thank you. It's almost time to go, but I wanted to say, I'm Bev, and I'm a compulsive overeater. One of the things that I was thinking about that I've become real aware of, I was most identifying with the person who gave the question to Lucille about the food plan, and then that doesn't work now, and what do I do now, and all of that stuff, and I can relate to that kind of anxiety as you feel weight coming back on and you don't know where to go and you don't know what to do and you know you can't go back to where you were but you have no idea what to do now. And um, I had made this whole program in my own way luck. It was like, it was like um, almost into superstition where if I did the magic stuff at the magic time then I would get the magic answer. And um, if things weren't working for me, it was because I wasn't doing the right thing at the right place at the right time, and the moon wasn't in the seventh house, and things weren't, I was, it had to be me doing something wrong because it, it was this lucky lightning bolt that was going to hit me. And if I wasn't doing things right, I wasn't going to get hit by the bolt, and if I started doing all the right stuff and lining it up, then it was going to happen for me. And I, I was reading something. I remember something Dulcie said here last year that really stayed with me for a long, long time, and I still carry it with me. It was that she went to an AA meeting, and someone said to, the speaker said to the people in the audience, if you came here looking for God, you won't find him, because what you're looking for, you're looking with. And when she said that, I thought that was the neatest thing, because the biggest thing I know now is that what I need and what I'm looking for, I have. It's always available to me. My higher power is always with me, but I am very much aware of the fact that sometimes I don't want that help. I want to be thin and I want to eat. And if my choice is that I feel pain and not eat, sometimes I will go ahead and eat and then I will lament that I haven't been rescued. But the reality for me is that I'm not willing to be, and I can accept that. I mean, I'm not blaming myself. I just understand that. I can piss and moan all I want, but when it gets pushed to shove, I don't know how to deal with pain. I have no concept of how to deal. I was grown, I was raised in a family where you didn't deal with anything. I mean, everything was, we were talking last night about addicts objectifying things. I objectified the world. People were just objects for me. And I didn't know what you do. I don't know what you do when, when things happen that are so, so painful and you can't use. And I can remember, especially during the period of time when I wasn't smoking, that I would start feeling feelings, and I would start reaching around. Like, I, I wanted to hold, I wanted something. I wanted a cigarette, I wanted food. I wanted something because I don't know what you do with the feelings. And so my choice to eat is my choice because I haven't, I haven't learned how to deal with the pain yet. And sometimes I choose to just hang in there and, and, and tough it out, and then I don't eat. But one of the things I'm real aware of now is it's just, it's always my choice. And it isn't a lucky lightning bolt that's out there somewhere in the, in the 
stratosphere that's going to hit me if I'm standing in the right place at the right time. I've got that lightning bolt within me. I just have to choose to use it. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. I want to be able to more often and as time goes on I am more willing to because I'm more willing to be able to understand that I will be protected which is something I never understood before. But I always make an analogy of I don't swim and I don't swim and I don't float because I don't believe that water will hold me. And I've never believed that. I mean it can hold battleships and I don't think it's going to hold me. And I don't care how many people go swimming past me, I still don't think that water's going to hold me. And it's the same thing with step three in my trust for God. I see you guys, I see you working it, and I see people, and I see it working for me, and yet somehow, somewhere within me, there's still that doubt that I am going to be able to be held up. And once I get through that, and it's going to take me a lot of time, the trust, what, what is required for that is going to take me some time. But I think someday that I'll have that, and I think someday else.